A lot of us have done it, peered into the windows of apartments and brownstones around New York City, checking out how high the ceilings are, how big the TV screens are, that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about. All to feed our natural curiosity about how other people live. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guest this morning is Connie Rosenblum. Connie was the author of the Habitats column published in the real estate section of the New York Times. She's put together expanded versions of a selection of the Habitats column in a book called Habitats, Private Lives in the Big City. Connie, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for having me. This past Saturday night, I was walking around Greenwich Village after having dinner with a friend. And at times, I couldn't help but peer into the windows of some of the homes, not in a creepy way, I have to add. I was simply admiring the chandeliers and historic interiors of many of these homes. And I know I'm not alone in doing things like that, right, Connie? Indeed. It's it's one characteristic of New Yorkers that they, they can't resist being voyeurs, although in a, in, a, in a nice sense. Right, not creepy, like I no. said. Absolutely. And I think that's partly for two reasons. One is that uh, compared to, for example, the suburbs, it is possible to look into other New Yorkers' apartments. They're they're close to the street. They're stacked one on another. The shutters are open. There are lights. But a second reason is I think we're so very curious about the people who live not far from us, and we really want to know about their lives, and the way we'll find out about their lives is by looking into their apartments. Is it a grass is greener on the other side sort of mentality, do you think? Absolutely. I think that you think... No matter how nice your apartment is, you think someone has more books or a nicer ceiling or a better chandelier or a larger TV screen. And when I was uh, doing the, the the articles that became the book, I think in, in 99% of the visits, I wanted to just stay there and live. And sometimes I almost want to say to the person, will you adopt me so I can (laughs) live in your apartment forever? How long did you write the Habitats column for the New York Times? I wrote it for nearly four years. I started in in spring of 2009 when the city section, which I'd been the editor of, sadly folded after my 10 years at the helm. And I wrote the Habitats section, either column, either every week or every other week until late 2012 when it was discontinued as part of a section redesign. When you took on that column, what were you thinking about in terms of the approach? How did you want to go into it? I had two main goals. One is I wanted to make it about people who lived in New York City. Prior to my arrival, it had been about anyone who lived in the tri-state area, and obviously there are great homes and places to live to be written about in the tri-state area. But I, I love New York. I live in New York. The city section had been about New York. I wrote a book about your own grand concourse. And I wanted the columns taken as a whole to reveal something about life in New York City. My other goal, uh, as one of my subjects put it, is he said you you're writing biography through real estate, and that's very much what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell the stories of people's lives through how they lived and how they felt about how they lived, even even more. For example, there were people who lived in very, very modest surroundings, but 
their their sense of the importance and value of their home was transcendent, amazingly, for a 300-square-foot apartment. And I thought this fascinating. I thought it fascinating that even people who lived in places with limitations, for the most part, were very happy where they were. Talking about people who live in small spaces, your book introduces us to a couple from Arkansas that live in a 375-square-foot apartment on the Lower East Side. And I love this line. You write, they've transformed a space that some people would find as confining as a coffin into a shiny jewel box. How did they make that happen? Well, I should add about this couple. The wife's pregnant, so they're going to have three oh, people in the, you know, in the tiny little box. 375 square foot apartment. I, indeed, at least for a while. The way they did that, I think, has to do with the fact that they're both very visual. She worked for a fashion company. He designs furniture. So they had a very good instinctive eye for not only how to make a place look lovely, but how to make a place look larger. And the way they did that was a lot through the artful use of mirrors and shiny surfaces and decorative touches. I remember the open kitchen cabinets, you barely call them cabinets, but with these beautiful bowls and mugs that I think came from Ikea, but they were arranged so gorgeously, you really thought you were in a kind of a little house museum. And the other thing that I think was great about their tiny little apartment is they had a tiny little terrace outside or garden area. And although that was small, too, that was really very much part of where they lived. What are the characteristics New Yorkers value most in a home, do you think? I think what New Yorkers love much more than you would think is a view. And the number of people who complain about facing a brick wall and the number of people who, who exalt in the fact that they they have a view is is remarkable. And they talk about it more than the, the second bathroom or the parquet floors. There's something about having a view that transforms where you live. I, I'm a perfect example of it because when I first lived in New York, early on living in New York, I had a little nothing apartment in Chelsea with a couple of friends, but somehow we had a view of the Empire State Building, and I, I felt like I owned the city. It was really, really remarkable. And where I live now, which is in Brooklyn Heights, which has one of the great views of, of this planet mm-hmm. across the harbor, I'm also sorry to say that it's the 9-11 view, so it's it's never quite the same, but it's still amazing. It's the skyscrapers and the ferries and the the fireworks, and, and it's wonderful. I'm very jealous of the view of Barbara McCall and her family. They live in the Soundview section of the Bronx. You write about them in this book. Yeah, and what's very interesting, uh, the way I... I got to to them is Barbara's daughter, Cherie, works for my dentist in the Empire State Building. And at the time, I was desperately seeking good subjects in the Bronx. She said, well, my mom is up there. Maybe she'll talk to. And her mom was wonderful and had a steel trap memory happily. But people might say, well, Soundview isn't a great neighborhood. Uh, and it, she lives in housing that was publicly subsidized. It's not; She's not in a mansion by any means. It's not a very large apartment. But they are high in a tower with lot, not a lot of buildings around them. And she can look in every direction. She can see the planes at the airports, and she can sometimes see the Macy's fireworks. And she loves it. And people might say, that's not a great place to live, but she would like to be there forever. Another person represented in the book who lives in public housing is Renee Flowers, and she lives in the Gowanus Houses in Brooklyn. And she simply loves living in public housing. In fact, she doesn't want to live anywhere else. Why does she love it so much? 
She loves living there because I think because of the sense of community, which is very deep and go goes very deep. Her parents moved there when their children were small in the 50s when to be honest public housing was a different animal than it is now. It was it was much safer, it was much cleaner, there was much less social disarray and the people who moved there the the first generation uh, the pioneers, as they call them, felt very fortunate to be there. And because she's been there more than half a century, she has many, many friends. She has family living nearby, and she feels very, very rooted in the place and very involved. She's she's not unaware of the the violence. And she the lost trouble. a family member to she, gun violence. She, she, yeah, she did, and she lost a very treasured godson. Uh, to gun violence. And I remember when I was interviewing her and we looked out the window from her high apartment down to the ground and she pointed to where he had been killed. And there were tears in her eyes and tears in my eyes too. And she's not she's not unaware of the problems. But the fact is she has a good job with the post office. She has a, a grown son. She could move somewhere if she wanted to. And, and I asked her would she consider it and she said not in a million years. How important was it for you to make sure that you had stories represented from the city's publicly subsidized housing in this book? Very, very important, because the last thing I wanted, I mean, we all know there's enough writing about the the well-to-do in in this world, and I very, very much in the column and in the choice of columns to include in the book, I very much wanted it to represent the city ethnically and and even more socioeconomically. And I wanted people who were in small, cheap apartments and in publicly subsidized apartments and also people whose rent was low because they'd just been there for a long time. One example was a, a man I interviewed who lived on the Grand Concourse. He used to live there for decades. And as we know, the Grand Concourse was a lot cheaper 30, 40 years ago. So even though he's in one of those gorgeous Art Deco buildings, he, the rent is reasonable. He's a nurse, and he's able to afford the rent on his salary. But I, I think that we, especially these days with the gap between rich and poor, we forget how little some people have to live on and how little they have to make do on and the smallness of their quarters as a result of this or the remoteness of their quarters, people who live at the end of the subway line and have a, an hour, an hour and a half commute each way. We These people tend to be invisible and that's why I wanted them to be focused on in, in the column and in the book. When I was growing up here in the Bronx, my grandparents and great-grandparents lived under the same roof in a single-family house. How common is it for family members of different generations to live together today? It's not as common as it was back in the day, but it is becoming more common, I think, statistically in terms of children, grown children staying with their parents. When I was researching the the book on the Grand Concourse, Boulevard of Dreams, one of the things I was very struck by is that in the 30s during the Depression, many adult Bronx children would come back and live with their parents because after graduating from college because they couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And very often they lived there after they were married. And these were not huge apartments. Even the lovely Grand Concourse buildings were not enormous apartments. And I don't think it was always the easiest relationship, and the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law being at such close close quarters created issues, I'm sure. But it wasn't no – one, no one thought anything of it. No one criticized the people who came back home. The story of Peter Marquette 
He lives in Long Island City, Queens. It's a quite fascinating story. And you actually titled this vignette, The House That Saved His Life. How did this house save his life? I think the house literally saved his life, not to put too fine a point on it. He had lived in this Queens neighborhood his entire life. His parents, his grandparents, back to great-grandparents, the in-laws, the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents. He was deeply rooted to the neighborhood, one of the very typical, solid, deep roots, working-class neighborhoods in the city. And he had two grown, eventually grown children. And after his wife died, after a long and, and incredibly happy marriage, as far as I could tell, they had been they had met young, they had married young, they were they were blissfully happy. She sounds as if she was a wonderful person, and he was wonderful too. And I think he, at that point, didn't see a reason for going on living. And what happened through a very complex chain of events is he ended up back in the house where he had grown up, the several stories small house, with his daughter his son-in-law and their two small children. And he, who had been laid off from his job recently, in fact became the family babysitter. And he had present with him 24 hours a day, not only these two very lively children, who I remember were very lively during the interview, but also this lovely daughter with whom he got along very well. And the son-in-law, who said that the father-in-law was like a second parent to him, more more than you would ever imagine. And he really, Peter Marquette really said in in so moving a way that he thinks if it weren't for them all being under the same roof, he didn't see how he could go on. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're talking with Connie Rosenblum of the New York Times about her new book, Habitats, Private Lives in the Big City. The book is a collection of Connie's newspaper columns about the homes of New York City residents. What does it mean for new immigrants here in New York City to find and make a home? That's a very good question because I think it's very complicated and challenging for them because in many ways it's very different to be a new immigrant now than it was 100 years ago when you really did in many respects, sever your ties with the homeland, Italy or Ireland. uh, And now through the, you know, cell phones and Skype and cheap airfare and so on and so on, you really live both, both here and there. I'm actually right now working on a story about a Bangladeshi stonemason contractor and thinking about him in the context of what happened to the factory in Bangladesh. Mm. And it is not not a remote event to him or to people from Bangladesh, understandably. So I think that that in one way it's maybe harder to assimilate because you still have your ties to your original country. But in some respects it's it's easier because you can kind of live in both worlds. People do go back and forth very easily. Sometimes people have homes in both places. And so the the acclimation is gentler. And also I think because we've become such a multi-ethnic city country, uh, because the world is flat, that you don't have to give up your past in the way that I think people had to do much, much more in, in previous years. You write about a Russian couple in Bath Beach, Brooklyn, and I believe it was the husband who said that it's a dream come true 
to live the way they live and where they live in Absolutely. New York City. Absolutely. And the reason I was struck struck by that is if you would look at their house or their neighborhood near the Brooklyn waterfront, it wasn't the most, even they would say it, I think, it wasn't the most glamorous house in the world, but it meant so much to them. They had, you know, come out of post-war post-pogrom Russia, and the fact that they were living a nice, normal, middle-class life in, in a nice, safe neighborhood in Brooklyn meant meant the world to them. They really, you know, all the cliches apply, but they really felt their home was their castle. And when I talked to them, you could just see the glowing looks on their face as they compared what they had now to the, the post-war privations and, and, you know, Holocaust past. Very moving. New York City has come a long, long way since its dark days of the 1970s and 80s. Did you talk with folks who survived to tell their tales of staying in these neighborhoods that were once overrun by drug activity and gang violence and are now these trendy hotspots? Yeah. Well, there's one wonderful story. Well, two wonderful stories. One is a, a man I interviewed named Joel Hinman, who's a, a, a writer and a, a mediator who lived uh, right near uh, CBGB's um, East Village. And he was there in the 70s when the streets were full of, of addicts and people off their methadone and, and hookers. And he had the dubious distinction of living in a building owned by one of the city's worst landlords, Jack Nickel, uh, uh, Jack Newfield, anointed him as that. And he remembers you know, the cops were always there and there were fires and he he filmed some of the deaths of the rats who lived in the building. It was just one incredible story after another. And he was young, and, and it wasn't as bad for him as it might have been for, for other people, but it was still a horrible, horrible chapter in the city's history. And now, obviously, no one can even afford to live in the neighborhood. It's so much more upscale. But I think we we forget how horrible things were in the 70s and 80s due to the the bank near bankruptcy of the city and the general social disarray but what was so interesting about history is i think that we have a tendency to glamorize those days and say oh it was so cool and it was so edgy and now new york is too white bread but the fact is there was a distinctly dark side to those years in terms of lives lost and lives in disarray that that I'd be surprised if we want to go back to. Another example of someone who sort of survived or his building survived the dark days is a young man I met who lived with friends in, in a mansion in Bushwick. And we all know how badly Bushwick was, was harmed during the 1977 blackout. The Beer Baron Mansion, yes, right? Yes, the Beer Baron Love Mansion. That, story. that was when, when um, Bushwick was seeing better days 100 years ago and had mansions and beer, ban- uh, beer barons. But anyhow, it fell on hard times. It was destroyed, devastated in the 1977 blackout. It's slowly creeping back. It's not perfect yet. But he uh, lives there with a bunch of artist friends, and you realize it must have been a gorgeous house in its in its day, and it's still standing, and it's wonderful if you're 28 and you're living there cheaply with a bunch of friends. They hold concerts at this house, they don't do. they? They in do. The, in the basement, I think mostly they're legal, and uh, I think that once in a while the cops say there are too many people in the house, so go out in the lawn, and they say that's fine. But they have rehearsal space in the basement, and for 
you know, is a city where it's harder to have a garage band because who has garages? So to have a basement where you can perform and turn the amps up and the drums is, is priceless. Pretty great to have been a pioneer, right, in the 70s and 80s who moved in, bought up properties, and now we're seeing, obviously, the rewards of having Absolutely. those properties all of these years. Yeah, if you if you stayed. I mean, the changing economics of the city were fascinating to track uh, in the sections of the book because everything seemed like it was so cheap all, not all that long ago. And people who did hang on, sometimes at great price, are very, very glad that they did. In this book, you introduced us to people who live in historic places. Obviously, that Beer Baron Mansion is one of them. But yeah. you also introduced us to a guy by the name of Paul Moakley, who lives in the Alice Austin home. Now, she was a 19th century visionary photographer. And he lives there rent-free, right? Well, he lives there rent-free, but he has to work for, for the money. He's the caretaker. And so he's responsible for... Uh, you know, if if there's fire or if there's vandalism or if something weird is going on and a lot of maintenance, which he's, he's very good at. And he loves being there. He's a photographer himself and has been a photo editor. And he lives in, in a little apartment on the top of her house with an incredible view of the water. And when I visited him there, that was one of the longer visits, I think, and he, you really felt the ghost of Alice Austin wandering about on the grounds. You could picture her in her long skirt with her friends and taking pictures with with uh, ca cameras that are a lot more elaborate than your Instagram image producer these days. And he, I think, was very moved by the fact that he could live on, on these premises and wants to be there as long as he can. It's not a lifetime uh, appointment, but he's, he was very glad to be there. Have you told any actual ghost stories, people who believe their New York City homes are actually haunted? <laughs> well, in, when I was writing this stories, I, I think probably every other column, I said, the ghosts of the past haunted. Mm -hmm. And my wonderful copy editor, uh, Susan Guerrero, would say, well, are these real ghosts you're talking about? <laughs> I said, well, not really. And so we, we took out a lot of the ghosts. But in my opinion, New York is, is totally haunted by, by the ghosts of the past and the larger sense of the word. And this is one of the things that I remember Colson Whitehead talked about in his wonderful post-9-11 essay about New York. He talked about, he said, what defines a New Yorker is that what was there before is more real than what is there now. You pass a building and what you think of is not the skyscraper that's there now, but the little shoemaker that used to be there 40 years ago where you got your shoes sold. And I think that for anyone who's lived in New York any period of time, even my daughter who's in her early 20s, she feels that, and she hasn't been around that long. But the past is so present, and I think the ghosts of the past are also very, very present. I felt that on the Grand Concourse. I really felt like it was 1928, and the furriers were still with us in these lovely buildings. You're right in the introduction to your book that census data show that 85% of New Yorkers live in buildings erected before 1970. That's compared with 42% of Americans generally. Now, that statistic says a lot about our housing stock. It does, and, and very large percentages of buildings built before 1940, 1920, 1890. And it shows that we value old buildings. We don't want to bulldoze everything and put up new things like, like Houston or, or wherever. And we, we value them. 
and we cherish them and we're very, very enamored of them. It's the idea of, of walking down a street of brownstones on the east side and suddenly you're in Edith Wharton's New York and you'd like it never, never to end. We're very attached to our past. And one thing I found fascinating when I was running the city section is that even newcomers to New York were very enchanted with the city's past. You think, well, they wouldn't care, they weren't around, but they somehow leached onto the narratives of old New York and, and it became part of their narrative, and they found it very moving. It's hard to imagine anyone in New York City not connected to their iPhones or their droids or some other form of technology, but then you meet a guy like John Foxell or Foxell? Foxell, yeah. Foxell on Staten Island yeah. who is totally disconnected. He was the person whose story stayed with me the longest and in the most powerful fashion. He lived in a very interesting and eccentric house in um, Staten Island with uh, things that would remind you of Dorothy Day and the front lawn. And he lived almost without modern technology. There were no televisions, no radio, no you know, instant messaging, no Facebook, no email, no Google. He used to g read the paper version of the New York Times at the public library every every morning. He didn't have it on a device, on a screen. And he did, however, have thousands of books, all of which he had read. And he wasn't a red recluse. He wasn't strange in any respect. He just lived the way you would live 50 years ago. And I found this so admirable. I'm, I'm something of a Luddite myself. And the fact that someone could somehow take a stance against all the the noise and beeping and instant in-touchness of modern technology, I, I really found that almost religiously inspiring, to be honest. Staten Island, of course, was hit hard by Superstorm Sandy, as was the Rockaways. Yeah. There's a story in your book, a woman by the name of Susan Anderson of Far Rockaway, and she turned this dilapidated bungalow into a home. Do you think about these folks and I do, what they're I doing? I do, indeed. And, and in fact, after after Sandy, I, I worried very much about Sue Anderson. I remember, again, the day I visited her, and it was several hours, and it was sort of a rainy day, and I felt as if I was at the end of the world. And I was indeed practically at the end of the very long subway journey. And after the storm, I just pictured her, her little vulnerable house, and I didn't, you know, I was afraid to call. I was afraid to email her. And finally, I contacted a woman, Jennifer Callahan, who had made, who's made a wonderful movie about the Rockaways, I should mention, a documentary, and asked her if Susan was okay. And she said, yeah, I think she is. I think the house is still standing. And then I did email Sue. I didn't even know if she had functioning email. And she got back to me in a couple of days and said she was okay, and she had lost computer and so on, but the house was still standing, although there had been tons of damage. So the fact that she escaped with her life and her house still standing, but she seemed a very personal example of what the storm could do to people. How much differently do you view New York City, considering what you write about and have written about? That's an interesting question. It makes me feel, I always feel lucky about where I live. I feel lucky in previous places I've lived, too. But it made me feel very fortunate that I live here and that I live where I live and in a neighborhood that, that I, my husband and I had sort of chosen it a little bit by chance because 
we were living in the Upper West Side, and at the time we moved to Brooklyn Heights, which was a long time ago, we needed to be able not only to commute by car in different directions, because we worked for newspapers in different directions, but more importantly, to be able to garage cars at 2 in the morning when we came home. And my husband, who's Canadian, had seen Brooklyn Heights, and it looked sort of like England, where he'd never been, or London. And it was kind of charming. I hadn't been there very much, and it was very affordable in those days. Nobody lived in Brooklyn Heights in the late 70s. And so we settled there, and never imagining that we'd be there, you know, low these many decades later. But doing all these stories made me, every time I came home, made me feel very lucky and very fortunate. It made me feel I had the right place for me and my family. Isn't it true, though, that your neighborhood is as much your home as the actual physical dwelling that you live in. Absolutely. And I think that's because people's apartments are very small and they often do face brick walls and they're one on top of another. It's not like the suburbs where you have a lawn and a backyard. And your neighborhood is almost more important because if you don't have a great apartment but you have a good neighborhood, then you have the neighborhood. And that's why, for example, in Brooklyn Heights, the role of the promenade is so important. And everybody uses it, joggers and dog walkers and mothers with strollers and, and older people wanting a little little air. It's really like a little community green in some New England town. And I walk around a lot in, in Brooklyn Heights. You go to restaurants in the neighborhood, you go to bookstores, you go to the subway, of course. And there's not a day that I don't walk down our beautiful brownstone-lined streets and think about what it was like 100 years ago and feel I am so lucky to be here. You hear, you see squirrels, you hear birds. You can't say that about every part of the city. The book is Habitats, Private Lives in the Big City. Connie, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Missed an episode of Cityscape? Not to worry. Past editions of the show are archived on our website, wfuv.org slash cityscape. If you're a fan of the show, which I'm sure you are, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter to keep up to date with Cityscape news. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to senior producer Morlene Chin and producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend.